You may be seated, John chapter 2. So we're going to, we're walking through, if you're a first-time guest with us, uh, we are walking through the Gospel of John. Uh, we are in John chapter 2 and looking at uh, this encounter where Jesus, I believe at the beginning of his ministry, uh, cleansed the temple. I believe he also did this at the end of his ministry as well. And so we're going to look at this in John chapter 2. It's been a month since we have been in John, so uh, let me help refresh us. And in case you were not here, we're going to read the text here in a moment so you can kind of see the context of what is happening and taking place. So if you would, look with me in John chapter 2, verse 13. And we're going to read down to verse 22, but we'll spend the majority of our time dealing with 17 through 22. So Jesus has been baptized. Um, he's gone to a wedding and he's done his first sign in, in the first part of John chapter 2. And then he heads to Jerusalem in verse 13. So follow along, please. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now there are other group of people there that day, so the disciples saw that. There's another group of people there who saw what he did a little bit differently. So the Jews said to him, So what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will, rise, I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So let me put together, in case you haven't been here, what was happening and taking place. So if you were to go back a couple of thousand years ago, and, and you were to head to Jerusalem during the Passover feast, um, and you lived in some foreign land uh, where maybe uh, the, the money was different than Jewish money, maybe it was a Greek coin, a Roman coin, or whatever the case may be, and you got to the Passover, every Jew, every male Jew over 19 years of age had to pay a temple tax, and you had to do that yearly. But you could only pay it with Jewish money. You couldn't pay it with Greek money because Jews really frowned on Gentiles um, because they were dirty and, and everything connected with them. And so when you got to Jerusalem and you got to the temple, you would have to exchange your money. Well, what happened was, let me, let me back up just a step. Um, 2,000 years ago, if, if you were to approach Jerusalem and go to the temple, there would be a front part of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. The next part was the court of women, where the Jewish women could go in. And then there was the court of the Israelites, where the men, uh, the Jewish men would go in. Then there was the place inside, the next place, was a place where all the priests operated and did all their things. And then the deepest part of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where once a year the high priest would go in and he would do the sacrifice and he would do the work in the Holy of Holies. Where all the animals and all the money changers were, was in the court of the Gentiles. And so if you were a Gentile or a Jew and you were to come in, uh, you would have to exchange money, and they charge all these exorbitant prices. They would charge you extra um, if your coin was a lot of money and they had to make a lot of change, they would charge a little bit extra. They also were doing this. If you brought, if you were a Jewish family and you raised a lamb and every, every Jewish uh, father or household um, was in charge of raising the sacrifice for that year to bring to the Passover feast with them. Let's say you took all year long, your kids were involved with it, and you came to the temple, and you came to the temple, and you came into the court of the Gentiles. They had people within the court of the Gentiles who would examine all the sacrifices that were brought in. Now, this was also a scam. So you would bring a sacrifice in, and your little lamb or whatever you brought in was unblemished, but there would be somebody in the temple that would go, uh, blemished. Um, you can't use this ammo because it's blemished, but I tell you what, come with me, Jerry, and I've got a guy over here, and he'll sell you an unblemished sacrifice. And so they were charging the poor. They were um, lying. There was thievery that was going on. And so that was what was taking place. Watch this. 
in the court of the Gentiles, which according to Mark 11, was a place for the nations who were not Jews to be able to come to Jerusalem and to be in the court of the Gentiles for them to worship the Lord. And that was taking place in the building. It would be like in the foyer out there if there were money changers, lots of yelling, and animals. Now, I don't know when the last time it is that you've been around animals. They just go wherever they want to go, if you know what I'm talking about. They don't go to the toilet. Um, it's an amazing thing, I guess, if your dog can do that, but, but pretty rare. And so right there in the temple, there was lying, manipulation, there were animals, there was poop, there was urine, there was shouting, there was all of this stuff going on. And when Jesus stepped in that day and he saw what was going on, the passion for the glory and the honor of his Father's name and for what was supposed to be taken out, taking, taking place in there, welled up in him where Jesus was going to do something about what he saw. So likely he grabbed some ropes, probably connected to the animals that they were using and tied up within the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was several acres, so you can kind of get an idea about this. It was a really, really big place where you entered in. It's where everybody entered in. And, and so Jesus grabs this, and he makes a whip out of it. And I want you to see something today, and I want you to make sure that you hear this. Jesus attacks no person that day. He doesn't go to a person sitting at a money changer and whip the person. He doesn't go to um, the money changer and whip the money changer. He takes that, and he's using the whip, I believe, to drive out the animals. The animals, who usually are in there and everything's kind of calm, and you've got this guy now in there, and he's got a whip, and he's probably whipping the animals, and they are moving on going, we've got to get away from this guy that's here. And literally, probably somewhere in around maybe, let's just say, 20 to 30 minutes, several acres, hundreds of animals, all kinds of money changers, Jesus has cleaned the place out. He's turned it over. The animals have been gone out. And Jesus alone is standing in there. And I want you to notice, He's not attacking the people. He's attacking the institution that was abusing the people so that they could come and worship the Lord so they could focus on Him and worship and pray. And so Jesus attacks this religious system that was robbing people of the opportunity to connect with God in prayer and worship. And so that's the setting that we looked at um, about a month ago or three, three weeks ago. And Jesus has, has driven out um, the people that are there. And so, so what we want to do today is we want to look today as the second part of this. Um, but we're going to touch on the first part because I think it's, it's really, really um, critical. But I want you to see this. I want you to see Jesus in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, standing there. All the animals have been gone. All the money changers are gone. And I want you to see Jesus standing there, and I want you to see him fierce. Not this little timid Jesus that people want to talk about today, that he's just kind and wants to pat us on the shoulder all the time, and, oh, you're so awesome, you're so great, Doug. And just all that. There is that Jesus. But there's also a Jesus standing in the temple who so longs for the honor and the glory of his Father that he's willing to do something about it. And here's why. The temple, this place, now we are the temple. Our bodies, this place when we gather together, is to be a sacred place, not a secular place. And I want to remind us this morning of this because I think it's absolutely critical. All week long, we live in a secular world, do we not? All around us. All around us, calling us to feed our flesh and glorify ourselves, whatever the case may be. And so when you get up on a Sunday morning and you drive here, whether you get here early or you're part of the 1040 crowd or whatever the case may be, whenever it is that you get here, get here. You get here and we, what we cannot offer you here is the secular. We need a break from the secular. And what we need is we need a reminder that life is about Him, that He made us, and that He is the one who gets the glory. And so this must be a sacred space, a sacred time. And so when Jesus stepped in the temple that day, He was attacking a religious system that was robbing people of the sacredness of connecting their lives with God. And He wanted that. And so see Jesus standing fiercely in the 
court of the Gentiles that day. Everything's gone. He's breathing heavy. And, and there's, a, there's a passion that is there that is glorious. And I'll say this. I want that Jesus. I want to know Him. I want to connect my life with Him. And I also want the tender Jesus as well. Because this person right here can be a real idiot sometimes. And so sometimes I need the tender Jesus to come and say, yeah, Doki messed up. I still love you, but we've got to do something about this. And so this is our setting. And the first thing I want us to see this morning, point one, is simply this. And I've put all the points together this morning um, in 17 through 22 around the phrase knowing Jesus. Look with me in verse 17. And let's talk about the first point. So John two seventeen says, His disciples remembered after Jesus had cleansed the temple that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus has finished cleansing the temple, and there's something began to settle in the disciples' minds about what they had just seen. And their minds drifted back. Now the Jews were experts on Old Testament scripture that was connected to what we would call messianic text. What is the Messiah going to look like? One of those texts was... A psalm written by David during a very unique time in David where worship was not a passionate thing uh, in Israel. And it's Psalm 69, and it says this, Zeal for your house will consume me. And so in the Jewish mindset, they had come to understand that when Messiah came, he would come to the temple and he would be really passionate about the temple. The temple was going to be a really big thing. And so, so here's Jesus. He stepped into the temple. He's cleansed out the animals. The money changers have gone. He's standing there. And in the heart of the disciples, with the Scripture that they knew, understanding about the Messiah, and what they were seeing right in front of them from Jesus' life Himself, they, they settled. And it says it right there. They remembered right there. Not later after the resurrection, it says at the end of the text here, they remembered right there that the Messiah would have a passion for the temple in the house of God. And right there they went, there's the Messiah. We are following the Messiah. He's here. He's come. He's standing right there. Look at him. And we are his followers. This reality brings up this point, and it's simply this. For the disciples, knowing Jesus in Scripture was enough to confirm to them that this was the Messiah. They didn't need anything else. They didn't need another sign. They didn't need another miracle. This was enough for them to know that the Messiah, nobody has ever, in their recollection, had come into the temple with that kind of passion and zeal to cleanse it out and to bring purity and holiness and righteousness in it, but Jesus. And so for the disciples, knowing Jesus connecting him with the scripture was enough to bring faith in their hearts. This is Psalm 69.9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now the Jews knew this to be a messianic text, and it was clear um, to them. Now I want to talk about one thing before we move on this. We talk about the word passion a lot in the church. Okay, my, that person is passionate for Jesus. Have you seen how passionate they are? They're passionate about missions. They're passionate about orphans they're passionate about this and there's all kinds of things that we're passionate about but can we measure passion can we can we can we measure whether or not somebody is truly passionate within the church how do we do that and so i think jesus shows us here that there's a way to see whether our passion is lined up with a biblical perspective in the right kind of order now we can have passions for all those things that i just mentioned and i think that we should have passion for those but let me tell you this passion for God's glory, like Jesus demonstrates for us here in the text, brings about a change. The test and measurement of passion is not how high we lift our hands today. It's not how loud we sing. It's not how much money we give uh, in the offering box. It's not how much we serve today. It's not how much uh, many mission trips that we go on. That is, that can that's a part of passion, but that's not how we measure passion. Here's how we measure passion. We learn this from Jesus in the temple. We measure passion in this way. Passion is measured, connected to holiness and righteousness. 
And the reason Jesus was so fired up that day is, is unrighteousness and irreverence was happening in the temple. And he knew that what needed to happen was righteousness and reverence in the temple. And so, so we measure whether or not our passion lines up with God's heart and what God has set forth connected with holiness and righteousness. Secondly, here's how you measure it. Are you willing to do anything about that? Jesus was. He didn't go in and and just yell a bunch of stuff. He went in and he said, no, get out of here. You get out of here. Get this gone. This is this has got to go. And so he he gets rid of what was in there that was robbing and destroying and marring the holiness of the place. And I believe that those are the only two ways that you, you and I can accurately measure whether or not our passion lines up with Jesus in Scripture is there's such a passionate desire for righteousness and there's, there's a desire coupled with that to correct what is wrong. And so for the disciples, they saw this action of Jesus and thought, that's the Messiah. There he is right there. He's here. Our long-awaited one is right here in the temple with us today. Well, it's interesting because there's always, with every accident, every collision, there's always another perspective, and you just go, how do you see that when, when you should see it this way, but people see it another way? Look in 18. So it says, so the disciples saw Jesus' action connected with Scripture. Psalm 69 is clear about that, and it says, so the Jews, these are the Jews in the temple, and most likely these are the religious leaders, because by the way, guess who was behind all of the money changing and working of the animals the religious leaders were so uh, he's stomped on their business their trade their money their greed he's exposed them and so they said to him what sign do you show for us for doing these things and you may say that's a simplistic statement but it, basically here's what they're saying guess what they're connecting with jesus's action as well psalm chapter 69 as well the Messiah would come, and Messiah would be passionate, but instead of just embracing and saying, okay, this, this lines up with what the Messiah would be like, he would want holiness and righteousness in the temple. But we kind of don't, don't like the way he's done this, the way he's exposed things. And so we're going we're gonna to place ourselves in a place where we're going to question him, and we're going to demand more from him. So the apostles, disciples, have seen the Scriptures enough for them to see this and connect it. This is Jesus. The Jewish religious leaders see this connected with the Messianic text, but they don't like what's there, and so they're going to demand more things from Him. And it's possible maybe His style of cleansing didn't line up with what they thought the Messiah would be. Sure, the Messiah would come in and just go, man, you guys are doing such a great job, and, and just all the man, look how great this is. You've rebuilt this, this Herod's temple, this third temple. It's so incredible. And, and He didn't come in, and He didn't applaud them. He came in, and He wrecked the place. And basically what they were saying to him was this, is who did he think he was to step into their sacred temple and cause such a ruckus? Who do you think you are? Did he think, do you think that you're the Messiah? What are you doing? And since his actions that day pointed in some ways to how the Messiah might respond, they wanted to confirm with Jesus whether or not his actions were true. And so they say to him, Give us a sign. Give us some more proof. Now, by the way, let me just say this. Think about this for a moment. One man stepped into a temple that had been doing this for 50, 60 years. They'd been manipulating people in the temple. And in about 20 or 30 minutes, he had cleared the place out. Do you think that's authoritative? Absolutely. Did he really, is that not a sign that he was able to step in and clear the place out? But that wasn't enough for them. So they want a little bit more. And by the way, this still happens today, and it mainly happens in prayer, where people say to God, I'll believe if you'll answer this for me. And so people will pray, and they will say, um, Lord, um, I'm praying this. If you'll do it, then I'm really going to believe this time. I'll, I'm, I'll believe, and, and if you'll give me some confirmation and give me a sign of proof, then I will 
believe. And I've had this experience in my life, you probably have as well, where I've talked to people and they say, well, if I could see a miracle, I would believe. And I would say, no, you won't. No, you wouldn't. See, the problem with the skeptic is not a lack of evidence ever. The problem with the skeptic is they suppress the truth. That's what Romans 1.18 says. A world of unrighteousness suppresses the truth. They're not really interested in believing. They're just interested in challenging. And so here they are in the text here, and they just um, they don't want to believe, actually. You know, there's some several examples in the Bible of people needing more. Now, Jesus gave a parable one day to kind of illustrate um, something about this. Uh, a guy named Lazarus was a poor man. He lived, and it was a beggar, and he lived at... Uh, the gates of a rich man who was clothed in fine clothing and, and ate everything. And uh, both of them died. And one went to the bad place and one went to the good place. And there was a conversation that took place. Jesus speaks in this parable. This is Luke sixteen twenty seven, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus, who was in the bosom of Abraham in heaven, to my father's house. Because I've got five brothers who don't believe so that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. But Abraham said this, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, Abraham said, they've got the scripture, the scripture is enough. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, this miracle, somebody resurrected and, and went... Then they will repent. And Abraham said to him, No, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. And what Jesus' point in that story was simply this. Watch this. Do we need a miracle today to confirm that Jesus was the Son of God and that His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the grave was enough for us to believe? Do we need an extra miracle to confirm all that and Jesus says no you don't that the scripture itself spoke about that wrote about that it became a true reality people saw it people talked to him people touched him after he rose from the dead and the scripture is enough and so today if you're here and you're like well I'll believe more if you'll give me a sign and I would say to you that you probably won't because in John chapter 11, Jesus goes to this place called Bethany, and there's this guy who's been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus speaks, calls him forth. He steps out, miracle of miracles, word spreads out, and guess what? Ten days later or so, they have placed Jesus on the cross and killed him after he'd raised somebody from the dead. And our world... In case you don't know this, is very skeptical of all the stuff that we believe and we've sung about today and even what I'm talking about here. And I, I, that's why, it's why it's called faith. Can I scientifically prove it all? I, I think scientifically we can prove a lot of it. I think historically we can prove a lot of it. I think archaeology, by the way, I don't know if you saw this, I put it on the Facebook page this week. Do you know what they've discovered in Israel? Yeah, out in Jerusalem? Nehemiah's wall. Remember when Nehemiah went back and rebuilt the wall? They've discovered Nehemiah's wall. Just further proof that all of this is true, all of it's real, all of it should be believed. And the scripture, archaeology, more than anything else in nowadays, is confirming the validity of the stories of the Old Testament and even many of the things in the New Testament as they continue to uncover more and more things there. So, what I want to say to us today is the Jews. The disciples saw what Jesus did and thought, that's the Messiah connected to Scripture. The religious leaders thought of the Scripture, looked at Jesus, and just thought, eh, we need a little bit more. We need you to do a little bit more. And when we get to this place, we challenge His authority by demanding something more to, to, be, to be shown to us when what we have been given is enough and i believe that jesus anger at their religious sin that day was grounded in the reality that the jewish leaders knew the scripture but they just ignored it and they'd come to the day dangerous place where we can all come to if we are not careful where we rationalize and we allow ourselves to do what we do and believe what we do and think that god's just okay with it 
And we forget that sometimes he steps into a place and says, I'm not okay with that. And he's reason, watch this, the reason he's not okay with it is because he is so loving toward you and I and so patient and so good to us. We just sang it a while ago. God, you are so good. We have been given by him thousand after thousand after thousand chances based on our heart toward him. God is so good today. And here Jesus standing in the temple exposes them and they feel they need to challenge him in that moment. And by the way, three years from that moment where he's standing in the temple, all that he is speaking, he's speaking here is going to come true where they will destroy his body and he will lay down his life. But they were really not needing more evidence to move toward belief because honestly, I believe they didn't have a desire to believe. There they were standing in the midst of the sovereign Lord of the temple and they were coming to the Lord of the temple as if they were the lords of the temple and communicating and sharing with them what they thought he ought to do. All right, let's look at the third thing. Look at verse 19. So just like Jesus, he's like, okay, you want a miracle? I'm not doing a miracle, but I'll give you a word because that's what he does. He said, I'll give you a word and I'm going to speak to you. So in verse 19, here's how he answered them. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now Jesus is not going to play with their little, uh, their little games and so he answers them in this way. And the reason they're asking, why do you think you have the authority to cleanse the temple in this way? And the reason Jesus says here is I have the authority to cleanse the temple this way because I'm about to do something new. I'm going to make a new and better way. And all this stuff that you've been doing here for, for 1,500 years now and you were doing in the desert and the tabernacle, all this stuff, it's going to be done away with. I am going to, I'm about to do something new. Now watch this. I think that as he stood there that day and they came up to him and they said, hey, we need more. Give us a sign. And I think Jesus did this. Destroy this body. And I think he pointed to himself. Destroy this body and I will raise it up in three days. And they're caught on the literal, but Jesus has an underlying message with this. And the third thing that I think is important for us is that knowing Jesus and what, what he did on the cross and the resurrection, it opens the way for you and I to fully come to God. We're not relying on, on, a, on a priest. We're not relying on animals. We are relying, men and women today, God himself came and made a way. He did this so that it would be permanent, so that it would be intimate, so that it would be so incredibly joyful, so that we would live life here knowing the security that God loves us, God has redeemed us, He has put His Spirit in us. And here is Jesus in His passion and His zeal for the glory of the Father's house was so evident. I tell you what, you want to you get somebody riled up and get them, say something negative about their passionate thing. Carl Bear was here in the first service. He's the only person here. He's a New Orleans Saints fan. Oh, God. Anyway, I pray for him a lot. But anyway, um, there's some other people up here who are that way as well. Boy, talk negatively about, talk negatively about our, whatever we're passionate about. Boy, you can get people pretty fired up. I'm convinced, and I've been convinced of this my whole life, that every newborn baby either looks like Elmer Fudd or Winston Churchill. Every one of them do. Um, but I dare you to tell a mom that in the hospital. Tell a mom, hey, man, your little girl looks just like Elmer Fudd. And see how well that goes over. She will punch you in the nose if she can get to you. So when we're passionate about something and somebody speaks negatively about it, boy, th- there's a passion that arises in that person. And I think Jesus' passion for the honor of his father's name and his father's house was so evident that day. And he had exposed them. But consequently, his anger at what they had been doing had, had awoken their anger at him because he had exposed two great realities of the religious leaders. You know what they loved? It wasn't God. Jesus said they loved money. Luke 16, 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They loved money and they loved 
the influence and the benefit of the religious authority that they were given. Matthew 23, 6. And they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And so Jesus speaks that day and look up here again. Here's what I think he did. I don't think he did. Man, look at this temple. Look at this temple. Destroy this temple in th- and I will raise it in three days. I think he did this. Destroy this temple. And I will raise it in three days. They used these words, by the way, against him all through his ministry. You remember in his trials, they came. When they walked by, when he was hanging on the cross, they walked by and said, Hey, you, hey, <laughs> hey, you up there on the cross, remember when you said, uh, destroy this temple and you'll raise it in three days. If you've got that kind of power, why don't you come down off the cross? And the last thing we wanted to happen was for him to come off the cross. We, ne- we needed him to stay. He needed to stay. There would be no hope if he didn't stay on the altar of the cross. And so they used this against him. They used this against Stephen. When Stephen was stoned at the feet of the apostle Paul, when he was known as Saul, they said this about Stephen as well, as 6.13. And they set up false witness and said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You see, what Jesus was speaking that day was wanting the people to know, listen, it's not this building, it's me. I am God and I have come to open a way for you to come into a relationship with me. And by the way, could he have destroyed the temple and raised it in three days, the physical temple? Absolutely. You know what he could have done in an hour's time? He could have done it in an hour. If he can speak the world into existence, could he not have spoken and dropped the temple and raised it right back up? So he could have done that, but that's not what he was talking about. He was not referring to the physical temple, but here's what he was saying. When he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, he was saying this, all of this is about to be obsolete. I'm making something new. There's a new way. There's a new thing that is coming. And it's going to be absolutely critical for you to know that I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I'm the one who's making this new way. And he made this. He was going to make the temple obsolete. And by the way, about 35 years or so from him standing right there in that temple, that temple was not standing anymore. For the Romans had come in and they had destroyed the temple, burned everything in it, and there was not one stone of that temple that was standing on top of another. The only thing that's left is what we know as the Wailing Wall today. That's the only thing that was left of that original temple from 2,000 years ago. Everything was gone. And when Jesus, he was prophetically saying, this is not going to be necessary anymore you got to come to me. And I've come to lay my life down so that you could come into a relationship. And I'm going to be the new temple. I'm the place where you will worship. It's not going to be this building. As a matter of fact, it's going to be so awesome. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my spirit in you. And I'm going to take your heart of stone. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. You're going to be dead. And I'm going to make you alive. You're going to be someone who's walking in darkness. And I'm going to bring you into the kingdom of my son. The glorious light. So Jesus Open the way to God by making the old way obsolete. Tons of scripture in Hebrews about that. But I want you to turn to Hebrews 10. And I want to look at just a, a couple passages there. If you would turn to your right, way back to your right. From John to Hebrews. And, and I want to talk about the body and blood of Jesus just for a moment. Before we wrap things up. So he made the old way obsolete because he opened the way fully to God through his life. And, and uh, no longer do we need animals. No longer did we need a high priest. He became the high priest. And he opened the way through his body and blood. Hebrews 10, follow me in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the, these realities, it can... What does it say? 
never, it can never, all of that work of the Old Testament could never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who drew near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, year after year after year, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now go down to verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence because of what He has done to enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. What curtain? Watch this. When He hung on the cross and He said it is finished, the Scripture records in the temple, right in front of the Holy Holies, there was this gigantic curtain. And on the other side was the Ark of the Covenant. And when He died and He said it is finished, that curtain and in, in, in the Holy of Holies could never be exposed. The curtain was torn and it was exposed. You know why? Because outside of Jerusalem on the cross was the Holy of Holies. And that building was no longer necessary. No longer sacrifices needed to be made because the sacrifice had just been made here to satisfy the demands of the Father. Praise His name today for that. That we're not relying, we're not relying on some little lamb that we're trying to, that somebody's trying to raise. And we're not having to year after year, year after year. So a new living way He opened through his flesh. Look at 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, here's what we do. Hear the invitation of God today. Let us, let us together draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean, clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at 23. Let us together, invited, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so Jesus, when he stood there that day, he said, Listen, destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it up in three days, and this building. And all the things that happened in it, they're not necessary anymore. And it happened in 70 A.D. And by the way, as well, let me just say this. Um, in our faith, we don't have sacred buildings. He's the sacred building. And now we have become the houses of the most sacred thing in the world. The Holy Spirit lives in God's children. So it's not sacredness of the building. So can you run in this building here? Yes, you can. We spill coffee in this building weekly. The youth played games in here, Foursquare. We did things. This is a place where we worship, but this isn't the house of God. There's no sacred buildings anymore. We. Isn't that amazing? Is that not amazing today? We, we house God. He lives in us. And, and together with the church, He's building up the church to be this incredible force in the world. Last point is 20 through 22. Knowing Jesus requires belief in the crucified and resurrected Lord according to the written texts of the Scripture, according to the Scriptures. So look at verse 20. So when the Jews heard that, they said, are you crazy? We've been building this temple for 46 years, and you, carpenter from Nazareth, you're just going to destroy it, and you're going to, okay, we're not, we're not building a table here. You're not going to rebuild this in three days. We've, Herod's been building this temple for 46 years. By the way, it would be another almost 30 years before it was finally completed. They completed this temple in 64 A.D. It stood together six years and then it was destroyed. And the prophetic word of Jesus that it would no longer be necessary was fulfilled. And so they said, what are you talking about? You're crazy. 
It's taken 46 years to build this. And look at 21. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, I love this part, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And look, look what happened. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. At some point in time after the resurrection, I don't know if it was before the ascension, but at some point in time, they were all gathered together, and one of them, inside their head, you ever had a light bulb go off, turn on in your head, and you can see things clearly? A light bulb went off in one of their heads and said, hey guys, do y'all remember that time when he cleansed out the temple, and he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days? He was talking about his death and his resurrection. And this is the centerpiece of our faith, church, as we finish up today. If you're going to know Jesus, you have to believe that Jesus died and you have to believe that Jesus rose again. It's Romans chapter 10. You have to believe in your heart that he died and that he rose again. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we believe all this connected to the scriptural revelation about this that we believe by faith that it's true that what's been written to us and what's come to us can be trusted in to transform us and change us and that's what jesus was stating that day destroy this temple and i will raise it again in three days and he did he's not in the tomb he's gone and boy they've throughout the centuries have tried to concoct all kinds of stories about how to disprove the crucifixion and how to disprove really the resurrection. And guess what? It's still the most popular storied story that is true in the world's history. He's gone from the grave. He's gone from the grave. And faith requires us to know him that he was crucified and that he was raised from the dead. So what do we learn from this text today? What do we take home? Well, let me, let me point out five brief things, and they will be brief. The first one is simply this. Be careful not to miss what Jesus is actually saying when he symbolically sometimes says things, that you don't get caught up in the concrete and miss the spiritual underpinning. John chapter 3, he has a conversation with a man named Naz- Latin Nic- Nazareth. Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and Jesus tells him, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, oh, you've blown my mind. How can I get back into my mother's womb? And Jesus is like, come on, dude. Are you not a teacher of Israel? No, I'm not talking about going back in your mom's womb. Remember in John chapter 6 where he said, you've got to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Well, he's not talking about cannibalism. You remember in John chapter 4, he's at the woman in the well, and he says, listen, I've got water to give you that will keep you from having to think that you've got to come back to this well all the time. And she says, sir, can you tell me where to find this water so that I don't have to keep coming back here? And he's like, I'm not talking about that water. I'm talking about I can satisfy you. I can satisfy you. Here, John chapter 2, they're so literal. He's not talking about the temple. He is talking about his body. And so when you and I read Scripture, don't get hung up and like, oh, my gosh. Sometimes these things, there's an underlying message that Jesus is trying to to communicate. And so read the scripture, investigate a little bit further. Secondly, here's what we learn from the text today. We should see all of scripture as something that is focused on the substitutionary death of Christ and his resurrection. It was always the plan he would die. It was always the plan that he would conquer death so that there wouldn't be a second death, that you and I would just experience physical death, and we wouldn't have to experience spiritual death. So the heart and the teaching of the Bible is this revelation from all of the Old Testament sacrifices. All of these things is focused on the substitutionary death of Christ and his resurrection. And I know I talk about this a lot, but I just I, I can't help but mention it again. You remember on the day that he rose from the grave, he joined two guys walking to Emmaus? And he spent the whole day doing what? Explaining all of the Old Testament scriptures, including the Psalms, that were written about him. 
And then he disappears from these guys and he appears in Jerusalem in an upper room where all the disciples are. Do you know what he did the rest of that night on the day of the resurrection? He explained to the apostles from the scripture everything that was said about concerning him. The heart of the Old Testament, the heart of the New Testament, all of these letters of Paul and these other things that have been written by um, John as well, they're all explanation of the Old Testament prophetic word that Jesus would come and die, he would rise again, and the whole centerpiece of the scripture centers on Christ, his death, and his resurrection, and the hope that is centered in that. I can't help every time we sing in this building and every time I'm somewhere else and there's something about the grave being empty, I can't help but raise my hands. Because it is, listen, not only was it finished when he died on the cross and he bore our sin in his body and he became the, the satisfactory sacrifice that pleased the Father, the only one, but when that tomb was empty, it's done. It is done. He has conquered anything, anything that could separate us from God. Jesus did that. Thirdly, here's what we take from the text. Be a person where worship happens. We now are the temple of the Spirit of God where the divine lives inside of us. Jesus stepped into the temple that day. Worship was not happening. He got rid of what needed to get rid of. But we need to be people where Jesus is the person, he's the place, he's the point of our worship, we must come to him. So we should be a person where worship happens. That means in our car, at work, as we're jogging, as we're cooking dinner, as we're hanging out with our spouse, worship Jesus. Fourthly, be willing, you and I must be willing. Here's where it gets a little more personal. You and I must be willing to let Jesus turn over in our life whatever he needs to turn over, whatever it is. So we need to say things like this to him. Lord, you drive out in my life what needs to be driven out. Lord, pour out of my life what needs to be poured out. Overturn in my life the tables that need to be overturned. Take away in my life what what needs to be taken away so that my worship of you would be pure and write again. And by the way, you know how a local gathered meeting like this becomes a holy place? When the people who come into this local gathering are holy. That's how you make the church holy. It's not by a shark steam cleaner. It's by when you and I have surrendered our lives to the glory and the righteousness of God and allow Him to move. Lastly, this morning is this. Do not ever demand of God to show you something that is beyond the cross and the resurrection. It's the ultimate miracle. It's the ultimate work. It's the ultimate reality of what God did. Do I have a scriptural basis for that? Yeah, I do. Two of them from Jesus himself, both recorded in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 12, 39. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. And then Jesus said, but no sign but the sign of Jonah will be given that generation. Matthew 16, 4. Same words, second time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Where did Jonah spend three days? In the belly of what? The fish. In darkness. Life ebbing away. Hopelessness. How do you get out of a well stomach? Well, God moves in the well and, and you're resurrected and you're brought out. So listen, church. This is a big one. Because I've met Christians who have done this. Okay, God, I'll stay connected to church. I'll come back to church. I'll serve. I'll consistently come to church. But God, you've got to do your part. You've got to do more. You've got you to show me more. And I'm here today to say the most glorious thing that I could ever say is that every row in this room, this row, this one, this one, this one, 
this one, everybody in this room today, I have the most glorious news that I can tell you today, and it's this, is that God has come to earth. He took on skin. He revealed the Father to us. He taught us. He loved us. He encouraged us. And He went all the way to a cross. He was put into a grave. And on the third day, the grave couldn't hold Him because He's God. And the stone rolled away. And He stepped out, the victorious, sovereign Lord of the universe. And the best thing and greatest thing and most encouraging thing and the most loving thing that I can tell all of us today is this, is that God has done more than enough to communicate to you and I who He is through two events, the cross and the resurrection. So Jesus says, an evil generation says, God, you better do more and you better do it on my timetable. And I, what, what an amazing thing it would be today in this room if we would just say this to him. I'm just surrendering, God. My agenda, my ways, my will, what I want to do, and I want to let you lead me. Can you imagine the freedom that comes when his life is being lived through our life? So let's don't demand of him. Oh, I'll believe more when, when you do more, God. He's done and I think, I think this personally. I think we will spend all of eternity, and I tell you, that is a long time. There's no time. We're going to move to a place where there's no time. But we're going to spend all of eternity. That's an earthly word for us, but it'll be a reality there that we won't know of because there's no night, there's no moon. It's just the glory of Jesus' light shining up the place. It will take all of eternity for us to fully understand the greatest sign that God ever gave us, and that's the cross and the resurrection. And I think we'll never exhaust the depth of that glorious reality that was done for us. So what's our response today? I think our response today is this. If that's true, and it is, then our heart cry should be more of you, more of you, more of you, Jesus. I want more of you. And so take, take what you need to take. I surrender to you because you are life, and I need you. Let's pray.